Well, it's great to be together again this afternoon. Do you know, uh, on the sidelines of a school rugby game, I am very comfortable. I, I, I like that place. Um, I can talk rugby endlessly with anyone. And, uh, you know, I, I know all about the game, uh, all the tactics. And on the school rugby sideline, I'm kind of a little bit well known. Uh, I've been there for years and uh, I'm kind of confident. So I look forward to that. It's a great place for me to have a conversation. So recently, along comes one of the mums. A bit of a friendly chat. And uh, let's call her Mary, not her real name. Um, we've only chatted a couple of times, but uh, her son and my son are kind of coming, they're becoming buddies. And so it seems like a good opportunity for us to, you know, get to know each other a little bit more. And we're chatting away. And as we do, Mary begins to talk about her beliefs. And so, uh, you know, I ask lots of questions about her beliefs and, and find it it's very interesting. And um, as often is the case, she then asks me about my beliefs. Uh, and I, I start talking about the Lord Jesus. And, and she says something like, but isn't that all a fairy tale? Oh, no, says me, warming to my task now, because if you've been at, uh, you know, at St. Andrews for any length of time, you know how that conversation goes, right, about the Bible and its reliability. And, you know, you'd be pleased to know I didn't go with Philo and with Pliny. But, you know, that was there in the back pocket if we needed it. And Mary says, wow, so you believe that God in the Bible stuff. What about all of that smiting and genocide in the Old Testament. And all those animals being sacrificed, I mean, vegans are totally right, you know. And, um, and, and surely, all of that homophobia in the New Testament, that's got to go. And sin, don't start me on that. Conversation's not going well at that point. So I think, that's not a problem, I will change tack here. Uh, and so I start talking about hope and comfort and meaning and prayer. And I'm not quite sure what the trigger was for her with prayer, but she sort of said, wait, prayer? I said, yes, yes, I talk to God in prayer. And she just left that hanging in the air just a little while. And I realized that I could hear the chirping of birds in the trees and that suddenly everything had gone very quiet on the sideline. I think Mary sensed my discomfort. And I think she's kind of offering me an olive blanch. But I continued on, maybe a little unwisely. I play the minister card at this point, which is, you know, that's like a trump card to play. You know, I'm an Anglican minister, right? And she says, yes. Um, And actually, that's why I was hoping you could answer some questions for me. Awkward pause. So what's the deal with all those abused children? I want you to know, and you can probably tell in my voice today, I came away from that conversation kind of bruised, um, battered. <laughs> I, I think I let the team down, I, I, not the rugby team. I, I feel like I let down the cause of the gospel that day. Um, I didn't have any, any fancy answers. I didn't have any clever things that I could say. Um, instead, Mary left that conversation with her opinion of Jesus unchanged at least at best and I kind of conclude from that that Christianity for many is a minority belief with a very bad public image worse than kind of feeling uncool as a Christian I think I was shamed for my faith very very politely so 
I don't suppose my experience is completely different to perhaps ones that you have had. And so my question is, how are we supposed to handle that? How are we supposed to handle this kind of conversation about God where we can't even agree on the basics? When, you know, what do we even say when there's no place to start? We're so far apart in our conversation. I was talking with someone else uh, just recently, and uh, they were telling me about a conversation in their workplace. Uh, uh, the boss and employee are having drinkies after work, as you do. And uh, the boss finds out that his, employee is a, uh, his employee's spouse is a Christian. And, and stops the conversation and says, I want you to know our spouses can never, ever meet. Why? Well, my, my spouse is so strongly opposed to Christians, it would be explosive. We don't want to ruin a good thing not going there. Now, I don't know if the boss thought, I wonder if my employee is a Christian, but didn't go there. First thing, keep those spouses apart. And I thought, wow, this is real-life corporate Australia. This is going on in our city. I tell you this because I think the standard Christian gospel, even a basic Christian worldview, is actually hotly contested in Sydney. We live in a place and we live in a time where Christianity, along with Christian morals and Christian ethics, is not only unpopular, but it's viewed as oppressive as, as um, hateful, as wrong. And in the public space, the Christian church is a byword for hypocrisy. If I go to your church, will my kids be safe is a genuine question. Even within the church, we can't seem to agree on the teachings of the Bible. We can't seem to get along with each other if our views are slightly different. In short, I think the gospel's on the line. It's up for grabs in the public square and as Christians, we're kind of arguing with one another about lesser things. And as sad as that situation is, I think the Apostle Paul would probably understand. You see, as he writes the second letter to Timothy, he's addressing a very similar situation in Ephesus. He's, he sent Timothy there to Ephesus, and the, the letter that we've been reading now for the last three or four weeks kind of feels a bit combative, a little bit hard-edged because of the situation into which Paul writes. Timothy is under the pump in Ephesus because Paul's old nemesis, Hymenaeus, he is still teaching heresy and causing trouble in the church. You see, it's very, very likely that the Hymenaeus that we read about in verse 17 of chapter 2 here is exactly the same man that Paul says in his first letter to Timothy, I threw him out of the church. He actually said, I handed Hymenaeus over to Satan so he might learn not to blaspheme. In other words, Paul has excommunicated this guy until he stops teaching heresy. But with Paul locked up in Rome, it seems Hymenaeus was again undermining the faith of many Christians by teaching that the resurrection had already taken place. Now, I don't know how you make that work, but nonetheless, that's what he was teaching. So Timothy's job is to sort out that mess in Ephesus and then pick up my cloak and my scrolls, Timothy, and come as fast as you can to Rome where I am. That's, I mean, that's, that's the whole book in a nutshell, right? 
Timothy, sort out the mess in, in Ephesus quickly, please, and get to me before winter so I won't be cold. That's the story of 2 Timothy, if you wanted to know. And I think it's pretty important that we understand that situation back there then in Ephesus and see how closely it connects with life for us in Sydney today. In both places, the truth is up for grabs and we're a little bit under the pump. So how should we speak the gospel into this contested conversation? How do we approach these conversations on the football sideline, at the school gate, in the dinner party, the office, the club, wherever it is that you enjoy company with people? How should we approach those conversations? I think Paul's exhortation to Timothy here in chapter 2 is very, very helpful for us as we find ourselves in those situations. So let's dive in a little closer into the text, a little more carefully now. Paul, uh, picking up after his trustworthy saying in chapters 2, 11, 13, effectively now moves on to say, Timothy, I want you to keep on message, stay on message, the gospel message. So I'm at verse 14. Uh, he writes to Timothy, keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Paul is insisting there is a clear gospel message which, Timothy, you must keep on reminding people of. All of the things that I've already referred to in my letter, make sure that is set before the people in Ephesus. There's no point, Timothy, in getting into trivial debates about words, endless discussions that go round and round and round in circles. Why? Interestingly, why? Because of the impact those discussions have on others listening. I'm skipping down to verse 16 now uh, because the point continues. Timothy, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. So this warning from Paul, it's, it's more than a warning against you know, idle chit-chat. He's saying, Hymenaeus' arguments about the meanings of words cross the line, actually, into what is profane and vile, actually, is really where the word takes us. They have left the truth behind. And drawing this kind of whole thought together if, is in verse 23. If you skip down there, Paul says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. So it's not that the truth doesn't matter. Paul is insisting that Timothy remind the Christians in Ephesus of, of his gospel and all that he's preached, all that he's referred to already in the, in the letter. But arguing and quibbling with Hymenaeus and in all of these disputes, no value at all. Don't do it. So in instead, Timothy, you've just got to say it straight. So I'm at verse 15 now. Instead of those pointless disputes, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. 
Reformed evangelicals like us, we love this verse. This is an awesome verse. Correctly handling the word of truth. The sense of the verb there is to actually cut a straight road. Okay, to make a straight line from the Bible to what you are teaching. Don't go to the left and don't go to the right. Don't go around in circles. Be a good workman who takes the clear and plain meaning of the text and take it straight to the lives of the people that you are, you, you are teaching. That's why we want all kinds of well-trained people in our church, people who are prepared for the important work of teaching the Bible. Uh, if you want to be a valuable kingdom, in, valuable kingdom worker, make sure you're well-grounded in the Bible. It's great uh, help, a great skill to have so that all of us actually can explain clearly, openly, transparently the word of, the, of God. All good. But there's something else going on here in the passage, which isn't immediately apparent, but Paul's got another narrative in mind. When he talks about being qualified to teach God's word publicly and the clue is in verse 19 where he quotes from our passage in Numbers chapter 16. So verse 19 uh, Paul says, nevertheless God's solid foundation stands firm sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Nevertheless, so in contrast to Hymenaeus' false teaching, there is an inscription on the foundation stone of God's true temple. You know, like those little memorial stones that they have. And the inscription on that stone quotes directly from Numbers chapter 16. The Lord knows those who are his. The second part is also going to allude to the uh, Numbers 16 narrative of that rebellion in the desert where Korah leads a a group of Levites uh, and they rise up against Moses and Aaron. Uh, They claim, look, we're all holy. We should all be allowed to stand before God with our senses and offer sacrifices to God, just as you, Moses, and Aaron do, just as the priesthood does. We Levites, we think we should have right of access too. And as New Testament Christians, and we listen to this with our New Testament ears, that seems like a pretty good idea. Sort of seems reasonable. But back then, Jesus had not yet opened up free access to God. Indeed, the only ones who could approach God were his chosen priests. To put it simply, Levites, actually, you are not chosen for that important task. So Korah brings the protest to Moses. And instead of Moses arguing with Korah and talking about the whys and the why nots and consulting the scriptures here and there and looking at argument and counter-argument, he simply says, you are to present yourself before God with your senses, that special piece of equipment that priests only use for burning holy incense at the tent of meeting where Moses would meet with God. So, Moses says, it's going to be up to God to demonstrate whom he considers worthy for this role because the Lord knows those who are his. As we read, I think, a fairly shocking conclusion to the story in Numbers 16, God's rejection and his punishment of the rebels, it was swift and was comprehensive. 
So Numbers 16 is kind of an uncomfortable record of what takes place. But the key idea is present yourself before God who alone tests the worthiness of a person. Paul is saying to Timothy, do your best to present yourself before God as one approved, one who correctly handles the word of truth. That's the narrative behind Paul's words to Timothy. When Hymenaeus and Philetus claim to be speaking God's word as they manipulate the, the words and ruin people's faith, ultimately it will be God who determines their fate. And so in verse 19, the inscription on the foundation stone of the church, the Lord knows those who are his. The false teachers will eventually be exposed for what they are. And God will do this. But in the meantime, how do we know? How do we know who the false teachers are? A good guide is look at their character. Because that's what the second part of the inscription is about, verse 19. Everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. The Christian leader of whom God approves, they will be growing in godliness. They will be marked by purity and compassion. As Jesus says, you can tell them by their works, by what they do. Bad trees produce bad fruit. It's pretty straightforward. As I was thinking about this during the week, I, I came across an article on a news feed about uh, a very well-known pastor in America, Pastor John MacArthur. And he had been speaking very unkindly uh, about two other pastors who were popular on TV, Beth Moore and Paula White. And the article was really telling me something that was, should have been obvious. No one cares. No one cares about John MacArthur's theological position or its nuances or his interpretation. No one cares because the world is laughing when Christians argue with each other in public, as they have been. The Apostle Paul would be shaking his head, saying, godliness is what matters here. A good Christian leader, as Paul says to Timothy now in verses 20 to 21, is like the good crockery that you get out when the visitors are coming around. You know the ones? The special glasses, the silverware, the nice table setting only gets used for the visitors. God uses the approved and godly Christian leader for the best and most noble purposes in his household. That leader will be cleansed and made holy. He will be or she will be ready to be used by the master. Pretty powerful illustration, isn't it? What kind of um, utensil would you like to be? A splade, uh, you know, made of silver? What sort of utensil would you like to be? On the other hand, of course, there are other roles in God's household for the person who does not separate themselves from sin and error. And they're more like clay jars and wooden utensils that were used back then for toileting and for cleaning. Parents with kids who come home with clay things, just don't talk about that. Important you should know. Big question, what should Timothy do in this battle with Hymenaeus? What should we do when the truth is contested? I think verses 22 through 26 make this very clear. Let's read them again. It's well worth it. 
Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but must be kind to everyone. Able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. What are we supposed to do when truth is contested? We should stay as far away from hypocrisy as we can, making sure that we live the gospel before we talk about it. That's what Paul means when he, when he, he says to Timothy, pursue righteousness and love and faith and peace as part of a Christian community. We would do well to concentrate on that. Run away from immature passions and run after godly character. We can't expect others to listen to our faith if they can't see it in the way that we live. Step two, avoid pointless arguments. The truth matters. And, And Paul says, keep reminding them of these things, all the things I've written to you about already. When the truth is contested, we stick to the gospel and we keep on sticking to the gospel. But esoteric speculation and fancy philosophy, just because we can, not worth it. It won't go anywhere. And then step three, we do this all graciously. It's the way that we speak about God's truth that matters so much. Verse 25, super important. Look at it again. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. It's God who grants new Christians repentance. A complete change of mind about the gospel. That's a gift from God. It is never the Christian teacher and preacher and evangelist that outsmarts, outwits, outspeaks, bends the will of others. It is only the grace of God. Shouting louder and longer does the opposite. Verse 26, according to verse 26, people who do not embrace the Christian message are not the enemy. They are captives who need freedom. Our priority needs to therefore be to pray for God to have mercy. So much more than arguing about politics and morals and ethics, we should be praying. Back a long, long time ago in the last century, As a very young man, I went along to a thing called the Billy Graham Crusade. And Billy Graham has a great reputation, travelling all over the world, vast crowds of people hear the message of Jesus and become Christians. I remember being completely underwhelmed by the man. He was plain spoken, funny accent, but he was just ordinary. But the impressive thing was the prayer that took place in the church I was at for months leading up to it. For the number of people who, they would gather weekly to pray for their friends, they would love their friends and they would invite them, do you want to come along and hear what is said? The power of God to change many lives in our city was remarkable, but it wasn't at all about winning fancy arguments. 
It was about plainly putting forward the gospel of Jesus. God changes lives as people pray and love and invite. So if I could draw together the thoughts from this passage that we're looking at tonight, I think Timothy's message seems to be to us today, when the truth is contested, we graciously speak the gospel, depending upon God to change hearts and minds. We don't need to shout louder. We don't need to condemn or to ridicule. Instead, God's in charge. His words will never fall to the ground. They will always achieve their purpose. It is the Holy Spirit who changes hearts and who changes minds, not our fancy rhetoric. So when the truth is contested, we don't go silent, we go gracious. If we read this uh, letter to, uh, to Timothy from Paul, the next thing that happens, he says, teach people the truth in the face of Hymenaeus' uh, heresy. Preach the word in season, out, teach them whatever the uh, situation, favorable or not, speak out. But you don't need to rant and rave and belittle people. Speak graciously. Cut a straight path from the Bible to the rest of life. And I think we also ought to speak the truth, even when it's unpopular. There will be some of us with special gifting opportunities to speak for Jesus in the public square, in the media, much bigger audience. And maybe, you know, as leaders of small groups or teachers in schools, that could be your opportunity. We should pray for the people among us who have a larger audience to speak for the Lord Jesus. But most of us are probably feeling like, I could never do that. I'm I'm not that clever. I'm not that sort of a speaker. I don't want to look like a fool. If that's you, I, I get it. I really do. I kind of feel awkward every time I talk to Mary, the rugby mum now, but we keep up. But, and this is, this is the whole point, the outcome of the conversation about Jesus is not our responsibility. It's God's job. It's our job to speak the truth humbly, graciously, and depend on God to change hearts and minds. That's why we pray. I think we've heard it from this pulpit before. We might lose the argument graciously knowing that God has not yet finished with that person. Let's pray. Our great loving God, thank you for your profound kindness and mercy in enabling us to respond to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for its truth and for its power. And we think of the many friends that we know, people whom we care about, Uh, whom we socialise with, who we perhaps are family with. And we long that you might be gracious also to them. Please open their hearts and minds to understand the gospel. We pray that you might be so kind as to even use us to help them in this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the gospel is under threat, when the truth is contested let's speak graciously trusting in god for the change thanks heaps Stu. we don't have uh, heaps of time for questions but one question that's been quite common uh, throughout the day is uh, in light of two timothy how would you respond to mary about child abuse yeah um i think first of all 
there's a couple of things I could have done before I even said hello to Mary that day. One is change my attitude. I think a lot more humility probably would have been a great thing for me to start with, imagining that I could answer all of her questions in one little sideline chat. I think I could have been better prepared prayerfully saying, Lord, keep me, you know, keep my headspace ready for such a, you know, for such a conversation. They never come when we expect they come, do they? They just kind of come randomly to our mind. Uh, so I think I could have, my preparation probably could have been a whole bunch better. And uh, where I think the conversation did start to go that was helpful for Mary is when we did start to talk about um, what it would mean to put trust in God and to see that the Christian has a very real hope. In other words, my, what I'm looking forward to as a Christian was something that actually she found quite interesting. Prayer, I think, was a trigger for her to kind of really get excited because it just seemed outrageous that God would listen to a person, speak to, them, speak to him in prayer. So I feel like there's further I could go with a conversation around what it means and what it looks like to live as a Christian in daily life. I think that could have been, that's where I'm going to go next.